You know, church, it was 12 and a half years ago that the Lord called Christy and I uh, away from our home up in Lexington, Kentucky, to move down here to the heart of the Bible Belt into Birmingham. And it's amazing to think about what God has done. And when we first moved here, one of my first things I did is I became a, a cultural exegete. I began studying the culture of the American South, trying to identify the culture and what makes up the people and how we function down here. Kind of like Paul in Acts 17 as he goes into Athens and he identifies the culture and he uses the culture to reach the culture. As followers of Jesus, we are to be continually sniffing out the culture around us, identifying how people think and move and breathe so that we might be most effective in our evangelism. When we first moved here, there were several things that I picked up that were cultural markers within the American South. Things like there are staples within this community like sweet tea and fried chicken that we really are passionate about our football here in the South, that paramounts above all things is allegiance to Roll Tide and a War Eagle. I began to discover that manners and being polite was a very important part of the culture down here that I really appreciated. But I also discovered that many, not all, but many display an external form of religiosity, but Jesus has little impact on their lives. Many claim to be Christians, but they are not followers of Christ. Many are Christian because of culture, not because of conviction. Many are familiar with the Bible, but they do not love the Bible. Many will date the church on Easter, but will not be faithful to her the rest of the year. You see, claiming to know God, but not love and obey him is absolutely foreign to the New Testament. And there is an eternal danger in being familiar with Christianity, but not knowing Christ. You see, in Acts 19, the apostle Paul encounters this group of men who appear to know God on the outside, but they do not know Jesus on the inside. They are what Alistair Begg calls almost Christians. The question I have for you today is, are you an almost Christian? Are you an almost Christian? Someone who's familiar with Christianity, maybe you grew up in the church, attending church sometimes, maybe you've even been baptized, maybe you've prayed the Lord's Prayer at ball games, maybe there's this religiosity in which you have been a part of and you think because of those things that you're in Christ, but you're not. Oh, what a terrible thing. That on the last day when you stand before the Lord Jesus and he declares, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe today you examine your heart and ask the spirit to reveal to you, am I an almost Christian? Let's look at our text together. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 19. We're studying the book of Acts together as a faith family and walking through this great historical narrative of the church. We, we started off all the way back in Acts chapter 1, it seems like back in the Nixon administration, 
in which we, we saw the work of, of the Holy Spirit. Or Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will be my witnesses. Uh, come on, Bruce, get it right. But, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We are now in Acts chapter 18, seeing the Apostle Paul has completed his second missionary journey. He leaves Corinth, makes a brief stop in Ephesus, drops off Priscilla and Aquila. He goes there to the synagogue in Acts 18. He shares the gospel. They ask him to stay. He says, no, I've got to get to Jerusalem. So he leaves Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila there. He heads to, uh, he, he sails, uh, come on, get your directions. He sailed east towards Caesarea. He then goes east further into Jerusalem. He's there for a feast. Which one? We don't know yet. The apostle Paul then heads north up into Antioch, about 330 miles or so. Gets to his sending church. He meets there probably gives a missionary update of what his second missionary journey has entailed. And then we see he is catapulted right back out and he's going back on his third missionary journey. Meanwhile, still back in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila are there and they encounter this eloquent gospel preacher named Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila, they respectfully and graciously correct some of Apollos' theology. He then heads to Corinth to strengthen the church with his preaching. Simultaneously, Paul is making his way through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, which is modern-day Turkey, and he is encouraging the churches that he planted years earlier. Paul then arrives in Ephesus, and this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. And the scripture says this, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Into what then were you baptized? He asked them. Into John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in other tongues and to prophesy. Now there were about 12 men in them all. We have journeyed with the Apostle Paul since chapter 13, in which he has gone through his first, his second, and now his third missionary journey. He's been going from city to city, preaching the gospel, making disciples, planting churches, training up pastors who will then oversee, shepherd, and care for these local congregations. Paul has begun his th third missionary journey traveling through modern-day Turkey. We see back in chapter 18, verse 23, he's been traveling from east to west, going through Gal Galatia and Phrygia. He ends up on the west coast all the way at the seacoast city of Ephesus. Paul would spend three years in Ephesus, more than any other city of all of his missionary journeys. Last week, I had the opportunity to be in Ephesus. I was there in Turkey, and while I was there, I took some pictures that I wanted to show you of this is what the city was like when Paul was there. These are the streets that he would walk as he would encounter people in this ancient pagan city. The population of Ephesus at the time was about a quarter of a million people, fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. 
very strategic city. And it would be in these streets. So that was, Paul probably felt lonely as if it was one versus 250,000. But it was on these streets that he would stop people along the way as they're going to work, as they're headed to the market. And he would stop them and tell them the gospel and invite them to believe upon Jesus. And as we're going to see throughout Acts chapter 19, this is the city where the gospel begins to take a stranglehold on the people. There's a movement that takes place in which many, many people come to faith in Christ because of the witness of the Apostle Paul. It was here that the city was full of idolatry and full of sexual immorality. Sailors would park their boats there in the inland area and they would come into the city looking for a good time. Vacationers would make family trips to Ephesus to visit the temple of the great Artemis what was one of the seven ancient wonders of the ancient world. An incredible temple to this goddess of fertility and sexual immorality. This was the culture that Paul was in there. He was there in this city full of pagan idolatry and the worship of false gods and sexual immorality. And here you and I are in an American culture full of idolatry, full of sexual immorality, that the world that you and I live in right now is not unlike the world that Paul is in here in Ephesus. What I want you and I to notice today in the text is how Paul engaged these almost Christians and how you and I can do the same in our culture. There's three steps here in the text I want to show you. The first step is this, ask where they are spiritually. As you encounter someone who is almost Christian, you ask where they are spiritually. As Paul is in Ephesus, he's engaging people with the gospel. Verse one, he comes across these disciples and he sniffs out a hole in their theology. He sees some inadequacy in their doctrine. So he asks them, verse two, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? Now, what an important question for Paul to ask. Now, some might accuse him of being nosy. Unfortunately, you and I live in a culture where asking people what they believe is considered rude. It's considered offensive, but not for Paul. He intentionally entered into uncomfortable conversations so that he might usher people to Jesus. Today, you and I live in a pluralistic culture in which people will declare, it doesn't matter what you believe. You can believe whatever you want. All religions are the same. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. You cannot believe whatever you want to believe. There is truth and there is false. There is right and there is wrong. All religions are not the same. Jesus declared in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus declared himself to be the exclusive path to get to God because he is God come in the flesh. There is a sense in which we live in a culture that says that egotistical exclusive message does not fit in here. And that's probably right for the day and age in which we are in. But just because it's not popular does not mean it's not true. And we stand here as followers of Jesus and we will not budge. We stand here by conviction because we've been grabbed hold of truth because truth has grabbed hold of us. You see, sound doctrine matters. What you believe matters. Regardless of what our pluralistic culture says, what you believe about God matters. 
The great preacher A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, believing truth matters. If you believe something about God that is not true, it has devastating consequences on your soul, on the trajectory of your life, and ultimately the trajectory of your eternity. This is why the New Testament is saturated with commands about believing the truth. You see, the most loving thing you can do is to share the truth of the gospel. Whether someone believes the gospel or not, you are loving them by inviting them to turn from their sin and to trust in Jesus. That you're, you're calling them to be restored back into a right relationship with God in Christ. You see, evangelism is the ultimate sign that you love your neighbor. Think about these 12 guys in Ephesus. They're living their lives, assuming that they were good with God. They were, they'd heard John the Baptist preaching. That's good preaching. They had repented of their sins. They had even been baptized. And yet, what appeared to be people who knew God, they did not. They were lost. They, see, there's a danger here. Is that maybe you've, you've sat under some great preaching. Maybe you've even been baptized. And maybe there's even a appearance like you are right with God. But deep down, you're not. You're an almost Christian. You see, your baptism does not save you. Your nominal Christian attendance to church does not save you. Praying the Lord's Prayer at a ball game does not save you. Jesus is the only one who can save you. Jesus came and he gave his life for you. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came and lived a perfect sinless life that you and I could not live. That he died a death on a cross that you and I deserved. That he volunteered to give his life and to die on your behalf. And the reason his death was so bloody and awful and terrible is because that is what our sin deserves. But Jesus gladly steps in, dies in your place. And the Bible says he was put into a borrowed tomb. It was borrowed because he only needed it for three days. For on the third day, he came back to life, defeating death itself, securing eternal salvation for all who would turn from sin and trust in him by faith. This is the gospel that we grab hold of. And this gospel is what has grabbed hold of us. And this gospel changes everything. This is essential, not only for your life now, but for your life forever, is that you grab hold of this gospel. Maybe today you're here and you're like, you know what, I'm an almost Christian. I've been trusting in something other than Jesus for my salvation. Oh, that today you would not allow your pride to get in the way. You would humble yourself and say, God, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? Lord Jesus, I'm banking my soul upon who you are and what you've done for me in the, in the gospel. I've got to have you, Jesus. And it's then that Jesus grabs hold of your heart and your life. It's when you surrender your life completely to him. Maybe for many of us in this room, you've already put your faith in Christ, but there are people in your life who are almost Christians. Maybe you know people who are family or friends, co-workers, teammates, in which they, they have a facade on the outside of looking like they know Christ, but deep down you know that they don't. 
How do you engage them with the gospel? Just as Paul here in chapter 19 was engaging these men in conversation about the gospel, how can you and I do that? Well, I put in your notes three ways that you can engage almost Christians with the gospel. Three, three, come on, Bruce. Three simple questions. Obviously not, not easy to say. Three questions. First question is this. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? You ask them, hey, what does the gospel mean? Now, if you're here, a member at Westwood, we know the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done for us through his perfect life, through his death on the cross in our place, and his victorious resurrection from the grave. We're banking our souls upon the good news of Jesus and what he has done. That's the gospel. The gospel is not what I have done. The gospel is what Christ has done for me. You want to make sure you grab hold of the gospel. The gospel does not change. From generation to generation, people can make up whatever they want to make up, but the gospel remains the same. What is the gospel? Second question to ask somebody is, how did you come to know the gospel? How did you come to know the gospel? There's got to be a moment in time in which someone shared the gospel with you. Maybe it's a vacation Bible school. Maybe it was in the, in the basketball locker room. Maybe it was here in a church gathering. But someone at some point shared the good news of Jesus with you. And they're able to articulate, yeah, there was this point in time in my life in which Jesus met with me. And someone told me the truth. And I received, in, I received Christ. Like he changed my life. The third question is, how has your life been changed by the gospel? How has your life been changed by the gospel? As you're engaging people who are almost Christians, they can probably put up a a religious front. But when you dig down behind the veneer of what they're putting in front of you, you're trying to see what's going on in your heart. And hear me on this. If Jesus hasn't changed your life, you're probably not a Christian. If Jesus has not transformed you, you're probably not in Christ. This is why Paul warns the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 13. He says, test yourself. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. You need to look down and say, Lord, do I, have I really believe the gospel? Like, has Jesus genuinely changed my life? You see, this is how we engage almost Christians with the gospel, is that we point them to Jesus. We put before them the true gospel in which you're saying you're banking your soul upon Jesus. And you see, God has put people in your life, in your American Southern cultural life of people who are almost Christians. They're at the ball field. They're in your workplace. They're your next door neighbors. And many of them have this veneer of Christianity, but they do not know Jesus. And God has placed you in their life to reach them with the gospel. Make no mistake, there are people all over the world who have never heard of Jesus. And we as a church, we're going for them. We're investing our resources and we're sending our people to get the gospel to the nations. And yet simultaneously, God has planted you here and now at this moment in history to engage people in your life who are far from God so that you might introduce them to Jesus. You might declare to them the hope of the gospel. This is the good news, the gospel of Jesus, and he changes everything. But you gotta be willing to inquire. You gotta ask the question. That's what Paul's doing here in the text. Westwood, let's enter into awkward conversations. Don't be afraid of rejection. Because The soul of people is at stake. Let's ask the question to see where people are spiritually, but step two, 
you got to clarify the gospel. you got to clarify the gospel. These men are perplexed by Paul's question because they don't even know who the Holy Spirit is when Paul asks them. So he probes further, verse 3, into what were you baptized? And they reply, well, John's baptism. Now, if you were to backpedal in your Bible back to Matthew, uh, uh, come on, Bruce, Matthew 3, uh, Mark 1, um, Luke 3, John 1, you'll see the life and ministry of John the Baptist. Here is an old, the last Old Testament prophet who shows up in the Judean countryside and he begins preaching. And he's calling people away from sin and to be baptized. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is about to come near. He's preparing the way for Jesus. You see, John knows his role. His job is to set the stage, to prepare the table for the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. His job was a forerunner to prepare the way of the Lord. In fact, when someone asked him about his purpose, he declared in John 3.28, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. You see, John's job was to shine a spotlight on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus's ministry begins to gain momentum, as his fame is spreading, John then declares in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. You see, John knew his role and he faithfully fulfilled it. Well, as these men in Ephesus in Acts 19 have heard and believed in the message of John, They've only got half the message. They haven't received the complete part. They've not heard the second part of what John came to do. They've only heard the first part. Several years ago, I was a student pastor, and one summer I took students to South Carolina. And while we were there, we went to this halfway house. It's kind of like not really a prison, but like a, a transitional facility for teenage boys. While we were in there, we were playing games and building relationships and just sharing the gospel with these guys. It was a great, great experience. But I remember this moment in which an angry young 13-year-old boy began yelling at one of my leaders. And he was just screaming at this woman. And he said, I know Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. And this precious matriarch gently and lovingly said, that's not the whole verse. The whole verse is, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this angry teenage boy wept. He finally got the second part. He finally got the whole message. Here is Paul going before these disciples of John who only have half the message. And he says, there's more to it. John's pointing to Jesus. He's clarifying the gospel. He's making clear this is why John the Baptist came, is he came to point you to Jesus. You see, having half the information, it leads to a whole problem. Have you ever tried putting together a children's playset with half the instructions? <laughs> Trust me, it does not end well. These men, they have half the message. They're still living 
in the Old Testament. So Paul completes the puzzle for him. Verse four, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people they should believe in the one who would come after him. That is in Jesus. Now they have a complete picture. Now they have the complete gospel. What I love about the Apostle Paul is he adapts his presentation of the gospel based upon his audience. I hit this several months ago, but I want to come back to it. When you think about Paul's evangelism, if he's speaking to a Jewish audience, what does he do? He preaches the Old Testament. He'll take Old Testament scriptures and makes a beeline to Christ. But when Paul engages Gentiles, he doesn't touch the Old Testament. Why? Because Gentiles don't know the Old Testament. So Paul has a different strategy for that audience. He talks about creation and conscience. Creation, things they can see, and conscience, things that they know deep inside that they feel are wrong. Why do I feel guilt and shame? Even as an unbeliever, why do I feel those things? And so Paul uses that as a springboard to the gospel. Well, now his audience are these disciples of John. So his strategy is different. He has different medicines for different sicknesses. And so now as he engages this audience, he uses the words of John the Baptist to lead them to Jesus. As you encounter teammates, coworkers, neighbors who are far from God, you have an opportunity to leverage the gospel in a way in which you adapt your approach based upon where they are. And here is Paul giving these guys who have half the gospel, and he gives them the whole picture. He unpacks for them what really is going on as it's driving the spotlight to Jesus. You see, they were staring at the moon thinking that was the source of light. You see, rather the moon reflects the light of the sun. The sun is where the light comes from. The moon just reflects it. They were staring at John's message when in reality, John was reflecting to the Son of God. He was reflecting to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the rescuer. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the source of power. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one they are to believe upon. So I ask you today, are you trusting in the moon of your baptism? Are you trusting in the moon of your religious works? Are you trusting in the moon of your own made-up idolatrous theology of what you think God should be like? May I say to you, stop looking at the moon and look at the radiance of the sun, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Look by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, clarity is a gift. I love precision. Here is Paul being clear with the gospel, and he's clarifying it so his audience can grab hold of the Lord Jesus. We live in a world that is absolutely confused. They can't even define what an evangelical is, much less what the evangel is. So as our world is lost in confusion, we have an opportunity to provide clarity in which we get to point to the gospel of Jesus. But you know what happens? After step one of asking the question of where they are spiritually, and after step two of clarifying the gospel, we get to step three. You get to watch God work. The next step they take, verse five, is baptism. Notice the pattern. Baptism comes after salvation, not before. 
And when you trust in Jesus, your first step of obedience is getting in water. It's publicly declaring your faith in Christ. Now, baptism does not save you. The water in that tank over there is alabaster's finest. There's no magic potion that we add to it. There's no special dust. It is a picture. It is a drama in water. But when someone goes under that water, they are preaching a sermon. They are declaring, I have been buried with Christ in baptism, and I have been raised to walk in newness of life. You see, what happens on that real estate right there is far more important than the blade of grass in the end zone in Tuscaloosa and Auburn. Which is why when people get baptized here, we're going to celebrate, we're going to hoot, we're going to holler, we're going to make a big deal because someone is declaring, I've gone from death to life. Jesus has changed my life. That's what we celebrate as a church, is the life change that Jesus makes in people's lives. And Jesus is still working. He's still moving. He's still calling. He's still saving. He's still transforming. And Jesus is working in your heart, in your life, and he's transforming you. He is, Romans 8, 29, conforming you into the image of his son. God is at work in your heart, and we get to declare that. That's what's happening here with these almost Christians, they encounter the gospel, their lives are changed, so they get baptized. Paul then lays his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power. They begin speaking in tongues. Now, let's clarify. Remember, speaking in tongues, this was not loud, incoherent gibberish. We go back to Acts chapter 2. Speaking in tongues is speaking in coherent, earthly heart languages. Remember in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, there were people in Jerusalem from all over the world, and they're hearing the gospel in their own native tongue. They're like, wait a minute, that guy's speaking French. That guy's speaking Spanish. You, you get the point. It's not incoherent gibberish. It is an earthly language. That's what's happening here. This is not a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is not a, a second blessing, as our Pentecostal friends would say. So what do we make of them speaking in tongues and prophesying? What we see happening here is a mini Pentecost. I love how Kent Hughes said it. He said, Ephesus, the city with everything, had never seen this before. What we see happening here is the work of God through the speaking of the gospel in languages that people could hear and understand in their original heart language. And this is actually the last time that tongues are even mentioned in the book of Acts. The norm is repentance and faith in Jesus. And the visible profession of faith in Jesus is not speaking in tongues, it's baptism. That's the common theme we see throughout Scripture. Now, there are times in which the Holy Spirit comes upon people and he works in powerful, uncommon ways. He empowers believers to do incredible things for the sake of the kingdom. I've experienced it in my life. You've probably experienced it in your life if you're in Christ. Times where the Holy Spirit begins to speak through you and you're just like, my goodness, these words are not coming from me. You're doing an act in which this does not come from me. It's the power of the Holy Spirit through me. Yes, he works and moves in that way. But what we see here is that the Holy Spirit is not something that comes upon believers in powerful ways and speaking in tongues and leads to charismatic chaos. That's not the biblical pattern or model. The pattern is that you believe in Christ and you receive the Holy Spirit. See, if you're in Christ today, if you have believed the gospel, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He's taken up residence. You have been, Ephesians 1, sealed until the day of redemption. 
He is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. At the moment you trusted in Christ, whether it's age five at VBS or age 95 on the deathbed, the moment you believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up permanent residence in your heart and in your life. And he begins to work. He teaches, he encourages, he admonishes, he convicts you of sin, he points you to righteousness, he illumines the scriptures, he's pointing you in the path that you should walk. He is continually working in your heart and in your life. When it's 2 a.m. and you can't sleep, he drives you to the scriptures so that you might study and grow more in love with Christ. The Spirit is always at work in your heart and in your life. And the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Holy Spirit spirit that these almost Christians get to receive in Acts 19, and he is the same Holy Spirit who is in you. Holy Spirit of God is living inside of you. So now what do we do as followers of Jesus? It's your impact point. It's what we're calling you to do, and it's this. Submit your life completely to the leadership of the Holy Spirit who is inside of you. That you would yield your life completely to him, to allow him to work, to uh, allow him to move, in which you yield and submit, and y'all, you watch him work. 1735, John left London and came to the American South. He wanted to reach American Indians with the gospel, and so he moved to Georgia. While John was there, he grew increasingly frustrated, and his mission was a failure. He encountered some Christians on his journey from London to Georgia, and he felt like they had something that he didn't. Brushing it off, he served, failed, and returned home. Three years later... John Wesley went to a religious gathering. And at the age of 35, he heard someone preach the gospel, and it is then that he realized he needed Jesus. He describes his encounter as a warming of his heart. You see, it was in that moment his life was changed. Up until that point, at age 35, he had been a pastor, he had been a deacon. He had been a missionary to Georgia. He was an almost Christian. But there was a moment in which he heard the gospel and realized, I need Christ. So I ask you today, are you an almost Christian? Are you banking your soul on some religious work other than Jesus? If so, today, repent and run to Jesus and he will receive.